0: Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. All right, here's a joke. What's the difference between a folk singer
1: and a pepperoni pizza? A pepperoni pizza can feed a
2: family of five. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nuneman from APM, American Public Media. This is the dinner party a culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations.
0: You just got a joke from the folk singer, surprise, named Todd Snyder. That'll help break the ice. Todd's latest album is called Time As We Know It. Later we'll speak with acclaimed filmmaker Richard Linklater, director and co-writer of the new movie starring
2: Jack Black, Bernie. Also coming up, Rich Summer, aka Harry Crane from Mad Men, teaches us about board games and political satirist Christopher Buckley is here with etiquette tips
0: for the diplomats among you but first as at any dinner party we start with small talk post haste All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Facebook goes public. Music icon Donna Summer is being remembered today as a groundbreaking artist. In a milestone now in American history, for the first time, babies born to minority parents are now the majority. Now for something you might not have heard. We're speaking with Sadie Stein. She is deputy editor of the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about at your parties this weekend?
3: Well, I thought we would probably be talking about the... uh Passing of the late Mike McGrady. Mike McGrady. Yes, whom you may know as the perpetrator of a nineteen sixties sexy literary hoax.
2: Whoa, I didn't know that. We don't keep up on (laughs)
0: sixties literary hoaxes, but do do fill us in.
3: Well, in I believe nineteen sixty nine, McGrady was a writer at New York Newsday. And this was the era of uh, Valley of the Dolls and a lot of other kind of salacious bestsellers. So he and his colleagues kind of for fun, I think they did this in like a week, decided they would come up with a faux salacious tell-all by a housewife, Penelope Ash. They would each write a chapter and make it as bad as possible. (laughs) (laughs) And And it was
0: a hit, I'm
2: assuming.
3: Oh, yeah. And he said they had to um, actually reject a few submissions. They were too good.
2: Right. But <laughs> I wish that happened to Karen's sexy bestseller, Shades of Grey. Yeah. That did not happen.
3: Oh, you didn't see the, the ones they rejected. Oh, I see. But, um,
2: Are you sure Shades of Grey isn't also a prank? I, I kind of hope it, was, it is. Yeah, I think it was written by the New York Times staff. <laughs> <laughs> it, has, it has Maureen Dowd's fingerprints all over it. <laughs> or Krugman, you know.
3: But, what what um, was it called? Naked Came the Stranger.
2: Wow. <laughs> oh, man.
0: I think I've uh, seen that book. But he passed away. That's that's very sad. Who attended the funeral? I kind of hope major literary luminaries were there. I think Jason Blair probably <laughs>
3: Presumably. Or at the very least, the uh, sister-in-law who jt leroy style actually played the role of penelope ash in public
2: wow into,
3: until they exposed the hoax you
2: know what this would never happen today though because there aren't enough people in newsrooms to kind of write a group book right <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> you need at least 10 guys
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: uh sadie stein
0: thanks so much for the small talk
3: as ever thank you for having me it's a pleasure
0: and now time for cocktails <laughs> Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's a crisp, refreshing history lesson with a shot of booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1981,
2: a superhero first made headlines. A guy dressed as a superhero. Yeah. Our friend Michelle Philippi tells the story.
4: Dan Goodwin abhors two things fires and apparently elevators. <laughs> It all began in 1980 when Dan watched the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas burn. Eighty-five people died, trapped on floors ladders couldn't reach. Now, Goodwin was a rock climber, and the next day, he went to the fire chief with an idea. Someone could climb a burning building and string cable to help people escape. The chief was annoyed. He told Goodwin to try climbing a building, then get back to him. So the next year, using suction cups and wearing a Spider-Man costume, Dan did as he was told and climbed Chicago's Sears Tower, the tallest building on Earth. Spider Dan was an instant hero and a bane to authorities. They let him off with a 35 buck fine and a warning which he ignored six months later by climbing the John Hancock Tower. And two years after that, the World Trade Center, where a New York cop following him on a window-washing platform asked if he was suicidal.
5: The last thing I want to do is to fall. last thing. I got too many things I want to do in my life.
4: That's for sure. Dan climbed five more skyscrapers through the 80s then took a 20-year break to fight stage four cancer. Until 2010, when he climbed San Francisco's Millennium Tower. He said it was to inspire other survivors.
2: So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Nandini Kound. She works at the Violet Hour in Chicago, where you can get some yummy cocktails. Nandini, what cocktail did this history inspire you to make?
6: Well, I actually created a cocktail based on the Ramos Gin Fizz from New Orleans.
2: Okay, and And doesn't that have like egg in it, the Ramos Gin Fizz? Yeah,
6: there's an egg white and heavy cream. The notorious thing about the drink is that you need to shake it for about 12 minutes, so it's... Technically a pretty arduous cocktail to make. I see. But I feel like an epic climb calls for an epic shake.
2: Okay, and you probably he was probably epically shaking with the winds up there in that high tower. Exactly, exactly. All right, so what's in your cocktail?
6: Instead of gin, which is the base of the original cocktail, I used mezcal because he was inspired by... The fires in the desert, and mezcal is created by cooking agave hearts for three days in these earthen desert mounds over pits of hot rocks. So that's right. There's an ounce of mezcal in it. There's an ounce of crème de violette, a half ounce lemon, half ounce lime, three quarter ounce of. I did lilac black pepper simple syrup just because I happen to have it around, but you can use a regular simple syrup.
2: Wait, that sounds like an oxymoron, lilac black pepper simple syrup. I
6: know. Well, I have <laughs> this lilac tree in the front yard that is actually epically tall as well, so it's good for the strength. Great. Um, an ounce of heavy cream and an egg white. Combine all these ingredients in your shaker, Uh, you do what's called a mime shake for a few minutes, which is shaking them dry without adding any ice.
2: A mime shake? A
6: mime shake. That sounds
2: like what happens to you when you're afraid of mimes (laughs) as a child. And then what?
6: Add your ice, shake it for another few minutes. And then pour it in a tall Collins glass, and basically what you end up with, is this is frothy, almost like a slate gray cocktail that kind of looks like a skyscraper at does.:
2: Oh, man. And then you
6: add a few drops of LaFroigue on top, which is a peaty scotch that kind of smells of smoke, and basically creates this smoke-scented foam on top.
2: Wow. It sounds incredible. It sounds like I would be. I would totally come to Chicago to climb that drink. Although with all those ingredients, I feel like my fine would be more than thirty-five dollars. The
6: the climb. Well, actually, what's funny about it is, like, tastes like breakfast. It's really good, floral, a little bit smoky, but it's deceptively dangerous. So let's put it that way.
2: So Rico, I was wondering, yeah, is Ronald McDonald mime? He's a clown, isn't he? He doesn't talk, right?
0: I can't remember. Maybe he's a flamboyant mime.
2: (laughs) Because if he's a mime, (laughs) then technically milkshakes at McDonald's are mime shakes.
0: Yeah, technically, yes. Uh, I wouldn't call them that when you order one, though, because I'm not sure what you'll end up with. Yeah.
2: If I ordered them, I wouldn't say a word.
0: Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, you can silently check out all of our cocktail recipes at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, The Guest List, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things.
2: And today our guest is writer Charlie Schroeder. His writing has appeared in the New York Times and the Best American Sports Writing Anthology, among other places. His first book comes out next week. Here he is to tell us about it
7: and his list. Hi, I'm Charlie Schroeder. I'm the author of Man of War, my adventures in the world of historical reenactment. In Man of War, I basically reenact my way through history. So I spent about 15 months with different historical reenactment groups. I was a Roman, I was a Viking, I was a Civil War soldier, among many other things. And basically it's all about my quest to learn about history in a fun, funny way. So here's a list. My favorite funny histories. (laughs) When Americans think back on funny history, we typically go immediately to Mel Brooks' history of the world. You know, it's good to be the king. It's good to be the king. And all of that. But long before he made that movie, Brooks and Carl Reiner made a comedy album called The 2,000-Year-Old Man.
8: Hello (laughs) Dad. This is 2,000 years talking to you.
7: And what's brilliant about this is that it basically started off organically. They kind of did it at parties, and other comedians heard it, and they thought, oh, you guys have to put that on tape. Otherwise, I'm going to steal it, because it's just too funny. And it basically involves Carl Reiner interviewing this 2,000-year-old man that Mel Brooks plays, and Reiner asks him if he knew Joan of Arc. You knew Joan of Arc?
8: I went with her, dummy. I went with (laughs) her.
7: Nowhere in history do we
0: uh, know of Joan going with anybody. Well, they
7: don't print that. <laughs> they don't print everything.
0: How did you feel about her being burnt at the stake? Terrible.
7: <laughs> I love the way in which Mel Brooks delivers the lines because we tend to romanticize the past, we tend to think of it as very you know, nostalgic or whatever, and he's just kind of like, yeah, sure, I know Joan. I mean, it's just very casual, nonchalant, nonplussed about the whole thing. Right. Another one of my favorite historical pieces that's really funny and quirky and strange is Confederates in the Attic. And this is a book that was written in 1998 by Tony Horowitz. He kind of profiles people and their attitudes toward the South and the legacy of the South. And Horowitz is this Pulitzer Prize winning author who found himself in Virginia and he had heard some gunshots one day. And it really kind of, you know, struck him. He was like, "What, what is going on? You know, he'd been in battle zones. And then he came back to the United States and heard all these gunshots, and he went out to explore, and he found out that they were Civil War reenactors. My favorite chapters were ones he spent with this eccentric, hardcore reenactor named Robert Lee Hodge. And the two of them go on something called the Civil War Gasm, which is this intense road trip where they try to visit as many Civil War sites dressed in uniforms as they possibly can, and it's absolutely hysterical, and Robert Lee Hodge has got to be one of the greatest characters featured in this in in reportage. The last item on my list is Black Adder. This incredibly witty, brilliant uh, British sitcom set in four or five different eras. And one of the things that I love the most about Black Adder, aside from its witty banter, is it's actually, like, historically accurate. And there's this one episode where they're talking about Sir Walter Raleigh coming back from the New World and he's incredibly wealthy because he's brought potatoes with him and like to us like now we're like, what? why would he be wealthy? Well, potatoes didn't exist in Europe. That's a, it's an American crop.
8: To you it's a potato to me it's a potato but to Sir Walter bloody Raleigh, it's country estates, fine carriages and as many girls as his tongue can cope with <laughs> he's making a fortune out of the things. People are smoking them Building houses out of them? <laughs> They'll be eating them next.
7: I love that about Black Adder in that they can take actual, real historical events and make them utterly hysterical. <laughs>
0: The guest list from Charlie Schroeder, his new book, Man of War, My Adventures in the World of Historical Reenactment, comes out next week.
2: Enrico, I spoke to Charlie this week. All right. And he said one word should prevent people from romanticizing the past and wishing they, they lived there.
0: Refrigerator.
2: <laughs> Close. Smallpox. Uh, yeah, people have these fantasies about living in the past, but life was pretty harsh before they, you know, eradicated diseases. That's
0: true. But see, that's why I like sci-fi because it's all about the future. Okay. Yeah, we're all we have to worry about is robots.
2: That's weird. Uh,
0: speaking of which, coming up <laughs> in our near future, satirist Christopher Buckley tells us how to behave and what not to serve for dinner:
9: putrefied shark meat.
2: Bring your appetite Mm-mm. when the dinner party returns. Welcome back
0: to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, actor Rich Summer, a.k.a. Harry Crane on Mad Men, confesses his addiction to board games. A shocking exclusive. But first, it's time for our
0: etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Christopher Buckley. He is the best-selling writer of satirical novels like Thank You for Smoking... He also wrote the memoir, Losing Mum and Pup, about his late parents, Patricia and William F. Buckley, the latter of whom pretty much gave birth to the modern conservative movement. His new novel, They Eat Puppies, Don't They?, came out this week. And Christopher, welcome. Good to be here with you. Thanks for coming. Uh, So this book, very quickly, it's a funny satire about diplomacy, or kind of the lack thereof, between the USA and China. So my first question is, did you engineer this latest actual diplomatic (laughs) fracas? between
9: the two <laughs> countries is kind of a PR move. I wish I could take credit. <laughs> that was brilliant. You know, it's tough writing satire in America today. You're in you're generally in a losing uh, contest with tomorrow's USA today.
0: <laughs> There's obviously been a lot of, to lampoon about this relationship. Was there one event that sort of sent you down the path of writing this book?
5: Well,
9: it was it started out actually as a book about the military industrial complex. Remember that thing that uh, you're a little you're too young to remember this, but there was a president Eisenhower. Named Eisenhower once. Well, we're very well. good. Thanks. He made our highways, right? Indeed, indeed. And uh, in his farewell address in 1960 was to warn us against the military-industrial complex, and here we are now, America with an annual defense budget of $700 billion. I, I sound oh, like Austin right. Powers. <laughs> uh, which is uh, larger, by the way, than the combined military budgets of the next 14 countries. So uh, how did we get there? And it sort of evolved from there into a book about U.S.-China relations.
2: It's funny that you mentioned that as the beginning point of the book, because your main character lives at one of his homes, is called the military-industrial duplex. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that would be the starting point. If I came up with that pun, I'd be like, oh, great.
9: <laughs> now I have a book. You would then have to write a 300-page book to justify right. that. There's nothing yeah. for it but to write
0: immediately. That's, you obviously have been thinking a lot about diplomacy while writing this thing, so it seems like you're very well-suited to talk about how our audience ought to behave. And I think Brendan has our first etiquette question.
2: It's from Sarah, who is in Beijing. Um, She asks What is the proper host? or hostess gift to bring when you seek asylum in a foreign embassy or consulate?
9: Mm. A question ripped from the headlines. This is a very good question. And as you know, the uh, uh, U.S. embassy in uh, Beijing has been <coughs> having a lot of a lot of visitors yeah. uh, lately. Yeah. My, my first answer was going to be toilet paper. Certainly <laughs> that would have been what I would have brought when I was last in Beijing. But that was 1974. So <laughs> it's, it's changed. I think there have been some <coughs> improvements. I already. would have to say uh, uh... american cigarettes now i'm not i'm not mm-hmm. here to you know promote tobacco my uh, my fiance is a doctor and she recently went to uh, libya you know back when bombs were were dropping and i said to her you've got to bring cigarettes and she said i'm a doctor i can't you know i can't bring c-. i said trust me so i went and bought her two cartons of cigarettes i had not bought cigarettes since 1989 do you know what two cartons of cigarettes costs
2: i can't no, imagine
9: $184. <laughs>
2: what? <laughs> <laughs>
9: I kid you not. I said to the cashier, There's, there has to be some mistake. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. And my fiance came back from Libya saying, boy, did those come in handy. Yep. She was able to trade uh, four packs for a bunk on the freighter that took her to Misrata from malta so uh, yeah. but, but to sarah in beijing's point as you know asia is still a pretty smoking place um china's the biggest right a lot of chinese smoke so i think this would be a very appropriate uh, present even if you have some moral compunction against it bring the smokes <laughs> well <laughs> you know right. it is i will say i uh, i used to smoke and i uh, uh if you're in a strange land and in a tricky situation, crossing a border, whatever, being having your passport looked at by some suspicious cop, there was no better way of establishing a an instant connection than offering a good old American cigarette. That's uh, fascinating. But it,
0: at the current prices, are you really getting away with anything there? It sounds like you're actually. Why don't you just give them a hundred dollar bill? It's just. A, <laughs> that's true. You're not saving any
9: money. Well, uh, if the cigarette doesn't work, I'll bring out the uh, $100 bill, right. although at this point, well, I was going to say they might prefer euros, but I think <laughs> at this point, the good old American dollar might pack a little more heft. All right, here's
0: our here's our second question. This is Sydney in Santa Cruz, California. He asked, when eating at someone's home, what do I do if I encounter a food that I really don't like, meaning I can't even choke it down to be polite? Is there any possibility of being discreet about such a thing?
9: I my tactic is to uh, look for the family dog. <laughs> And uh, signal to, you can always say, how's Fido doing these days? And lure Fido to under the table. Fido's like, oh, Uh, someone's speaking about me. (laughs) Comes over. That's right. And you discreetly reward him with awful food. Uh, I was in Iceland once and I was served, and it's considered a delicacy and therefore a great honor to be served at something called Hakarl. Yeah, putrefied shark meat.
2: <laughs> That's right. They bury it. Uh huh.
9: <laughs> it comes in sort of rubbery white cubes with a toothpick. Uh, the toothpick sounds and edible. The even better part of it is you're then given to wash it down. The local liqueur, something called Brinevan, which translates as Black Death, it's a, it's very, it's a very appropriate name. Whenever served hot Carl, I tried to steer the conversation around to the family Retriever. Yeah, there you go. Yeah.
2: They're like, oh, you would like more Retriever? That's our second course. So we have one last question that we ask all of our guests. Um, the question is, what's the most memorable get-together you've ever been to? Who, what, where, details, please.
9: Well, I, uh, I worked at the White House in the early 80s, and uh, once I was in, uh, very kindly invited by President and Mrs. Reagan to dinner, and I found myself at the President's table and Man. seated between Princess Caroline and princess yasmin khan Uh, who was the daughter of rita hayworth so i found myself uh seated between the daughter of grace kelly and rita (laughs) hayworth (laughs) and And my thoughts were scotty don't bean me up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm perfectly happy down here on planet Pennsylvania Avenue. I'd I'd ask you
0: what they served on the menu, but I'm sure you don't remember. Exactly. They did
9: not serve putrefied shark meat, I can tell
2: you that much. Uh, Christopher Buckley, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you.
0: And folks, if you find yourself seated between two princesses...
2: First, have a photo taken
0: so we actually believe you. That's right. Actually, don't. Enjoy yourself. (laughs) Unless you have questions about how to behave in that situation, I know I would, in which case email us via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. We will pass it along to next week's
2: etiquette expert. Or someone pretending to be an etiquette expert. right? Once again, dinnerpartydownload.org.
0: And now, time for Chattering Class. This is where we invite a guest to teach us about some dinner party-worthy topic. And this week our guest is Rich Summer. Many know him as the bespectacled TV advertising exec Harry on the AMC series Mad Men. He's in the new Broadway production of the play Harvey, which started previews this week. Yet today, we're going to talk to him about board games. So, Rich, thank you for coming. (laughs) Thank you for having me. In case people have a disconnect about this, we read in a a recent interview that you gave to Adweek magazine that you're a board game fanatic. I've taken a shine to them. Yes, you you blog about them. You've actually hosted segments about board games on the TV series Attack of the Show. Yeah. So you're going to teach us about these things. First of all, psychologically, what makes for a good board game? What makes it addictive to someone like
10: you? I think there's sort of a, a meta game that's happening where you are creating this imaginary conflict with your friends that doesn't actually exist or maybe it does I don't know but you're simulating you're creating this interaction that is different from your normal interaction you have to think and communicate with them differently and interact with them differently and I really for some reason kind of get a charge out of that
0: that's interesting because you you started also in improv i know you did upright citizens brigade comedy yes and that's what happens in improv you get you know thrown on stage with your fellow actors and you're forced to interact with them in a different way than you have before
10: yeah that's true that's true although in improv i mean there are rules but in games each game has its own set of rules Mm -hmm. and its own set way that you're allowed to interact with each other I enjoy, for leisure reading, I read game rules. Oh I uh, God. It's, it's a problem. Rich. It's a dark, dark, no. My wife, I am so lucky that somebody <laughs> said yes uh, because it's only gotten worse. But my word. I think that uh, you asked what makes a good game. There are two kind of basic things happening in most games. There's the theme and there are the mechanics of the game. All right. I will play a game sometimes solely based on the theme, if it's an interesting enough theme.
0: Like Westerns or something.
10: Yeah, like Westerns or World War II is popular or um, for some reason, like, farms in Europe seem to be very popular these days. Really? Yeah, but... uh, We'll get to that. (laughs) But then there are some games that I will play even if I don't care much for the theme because the mechanics are so good or interesting or new.
0: Well, is there something common to all of those games? Like some kind of mechanic that gets people every time?
10: I, I don't know that there's a mechanic that's a common thread, but there are certain feelings that should be there. A feeling of tension, like you can't quite get everything done that you want to get done on a turn there has to be some there has to be a carrot on the stick that you can't quite reach you just want to get closer to the carrot than your opponent that's interesting
0: it's almost like the structure of a story constantly ratcheting up the tension, making it more difficult for the protagonist. Oh,
10: absolutely, and there are some games, you know, there's a game called War of the Ring, which is based on the Lord of the Rings, Mm. and it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, if you are the free people, you have a goal to get that ring to Mordor, and if you are the shadow player, you have a goal of kicking the free people all over the map and just messing stuff up. Asymmetrical goals, they both play out and tell a story.
0: Um, On your blog a few months back, you said you go through phases in the type of board games that you're into. Mm -hmm. And you listed kind of a surprising number of board game genres.
10: What type are you into right now? I'm sort of back into a negotiation mechanic. Uh, No, what is that? Negotiation games, generally, you're trying to achieve something. And the only way to achieve it is to get the other players to help you to do it. You know, you're going to have to help them, but you want to help them just less than they end up helping you. (laughs) So it's a lot of saying, okay, I'm going to make this deal. Now, if I make this deal, you can't screw me over when it comes back to me. And they'll be like, hey, man, no problem. And then, of course, they have full license to uh, screw you over completely retract that. Yes. Kind of like Monopoly, I guess, is what
0: everybody knows that feeling from.
10: Yeah. Monopoly sort of has a real bad rap among the board game nerds. Uh, Really? Yeah. Why? Well, there is some negotiation in it when it comes to the property auctioning, right. but for the most part, it's what board game snobs derisively refer to as a "roll and move" game. Oh, uh, being roll and uh, move games. It exactly <laughs> like literally. You sounded like every dork I encounter, and I'm including myself in that at a board game convention. Only that, the hoi polloi would like those. That's right. <laughs> It is, uh, you know, Monopoly is essentially, oh, I rolled a three, I go there, now I do the thing I have to do there. There's no element of choice, which any good game should allow you to make more decisions than the game makes for you. You mentioned the trend right now is games about farms. Well, I can't say that that's the only trend. And, and also, I'm going to get a thousand angry emails, or maybe you'll get them and, and feel free not to forward them to me. But okay. I I, th- I think that if you look at sort of the more popular games right now, many of the games, as you go down the list, are European. And for some reason, many are based around a farming or an economics uh, idea of growing crops and then selling them wow. at a profit when you can. Uh, there's one that's very popular called Agricola.
0: Is there something going on over there that, that is causing... I mean, I never kind of thought of games being influenced by the political or economic troubles of the day, but I guess Monopoly is an example of that, for instance.
10: Oh, absolutely. Um, instinctively, I think that it's more that it's an activity or an occupation that lends itself easily to board game mechanics. But it does
0: seem like... Also, I wonder if there's something going on where being a farmer is something that fewer and fewer people are doing. So that seems like a fun thing to try out as a pastime.
10: Yeah. Although it's not... I mean, it's... <laughs> There are other things that seem like they'd be more fun in a game. And I don't mean to rip on uh, farming games because, again, Agricola is a fantastic game. It's just, it's as intriguing to me as it is to you as to why people are leaning on agriculture for their their game themes.
0: Well, all right. Last question. You also said in that Adweek interview that you are also a cocktail geek. Yeah, a little bit. Surprising as a Mad Men cast member.
10: (laughs) What is a great cocktail for game night? Um, the least sticky thing you can make is probably best. Sticky fingers are anathema for, for board games. And it's less about what the cocktail is. It's more about where you put it during the game. That's the hard part? Liquids are like kryptonite to the cardboard. So its I'd much rather spill it on the floor than on the game. But
0: I think cocktails could be a game tactic. You know, if you can get <laughs> your fellow players tipsy,
10: listen you I, have an advantage. You can't give away my trade secrets. <laughs> it's, it's all I have. So, Brendan, Rich is a great guy.
0: Yeah, he seems like Definitely it. Definitely knows his games. But he confessed to me that he never wins these board games. What? Yeah, which I just can't relate to. He says he's fine with it. I get super competitive
2: playing those things. I don't I, yeah, understand. Yeah, you're the guy who tries to win at Ouija board. It's it's all about <laughs> amassing ghosts.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for your letters and phone calls. Not too long ago, we arrived at work and found this on our voicemail.
6: Hello, Dinner Party Download. Uh, I'm not sure whether this is really the number to call. It's uh, about 2.30 in the morning. I'm on the uh, terrace in Waconia, Minnesota after a party. I've had a fair amount to drink, but I'm still fairly coherent. So I just wanted to say hello, Dinner Party.
2: Hello back, I guess. Uh, some of you had more sobering things to say. For instance, about the, t- <laughs> for instance, about the time etiquette experts Lizzie Post and Daniel Post Senig were on the show yeah. and insisted there's no hard and fast rule against putting your elbows on the table. Many of you disagreed.
6: Hi guys, this is Claire calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. I had a correction, or perhaps some more information to add about why is it incorrect to put your elbows on the table according to French custom, you were a dishonest person if your hands weren't above the table at all times. So the polite way to place your arms while eating was to put your hands, palm down, next to your plate. As a person who always has to be right, this is very important to me.
0: Thanks for that, Karen. But even if you're right, it is probably impolite to be so suspicious of your guests yeah. <laughs> that you need to see their hands at all times. Good point. Uh, moving from elbows to fins, one little detail recently slipped by our fact checkers and also by a recent guest of honor, Emily Blunt, who told us
2: this.
6: If you reach out and touch a dolphin, you can actually break up dolphin partnerships because they mate for life. So if you touch them, it's like they've been cheating on the other one.
2: A bunch of you wrote in saying that dolphins aren't quite as monogamous as Emily would have us believe. Right. They actually have multiple lifetime partners. Although, here's a note that surfaced on our website from a writer who calls himself Sprawn. I am a super intelligent dolphin that has been taught to use the internet through a series of air bubbles. Dolphin females think we quote mate
10: for life. Don't ruin it for us.
2: Noted, Sprawn. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's hope your wife isn't listening via it's amazing. air bubble. <laughs> And finally, last month, I sampled a French delicacy just landing on these shores, snail eggs, a.k.a. snail caviar. Little did we know that caviar, the food that sets the bar for luxury, used to be bar food.
10: Hi, I'm Damon from Minneapolis. So I heard your
6: story about snail eggs, and it reminded me, I was just reading in Bill Bryson's book called At Home, that in the 1850s, caviar was so abundant that it was served in bars and saloons, in the same way pretzels and peanuts are served now, because the saltiness encouraged patrons to drink more.
2: Man, the 1850s sounds nice. Well, don't forget the smallpox. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And that's a wrap, folks. You can call us on the Dinner Party Hotline anytime. It's free, it's open 24 hours, and it's the phone at my cubicle. Actually, wait a second. It looks like we missed a message.
6: Hello, this is Paul Mackey. I called and left a message. I don't entirely remember the contents of what I said, but use it as may or may not be fit, and I will uh, be listening along whether you play anything by me
2: or not. It's that guy again. Uh, And (laughs) audience, no matter what your state of mind is, contact us with your corrections, suggestions, rants, and raves. Yeah. Our hotline number is 213-621-3554.
0: All species welcome. All right, everyone, we are going to take a short break. Coming up, we sip the latest liqueurs, and filmmaker extraordinaire Richard Linklater tells us all about his new comedy.
11: He shoots her in the back four times. (laughs) This is real comedy, isn't it?
2: All that and more when The Dinner Party returns.
0: Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, the band Violins suggests music for your next gathering. But first, it is time for
0: the main course where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. Actually, we're going
2: to be talking about cocktails.
0: Okay, I thought we
2: did that earlier in the show. (laughs) Yes, but we're doing it again Because the Indie Spirits Expo happened this week in Manhattan. Uh, This is kind of like a Sundance festival for people who make alcohol. And uh, and an excuse for people to party, it sounds like. Like like Sundance. Yeah. (laughs) But it's also an opportunity for independent distillers to show off their wares. All right. And like in the film industry, indie alcohol producers usually make quirkier stuff than the big beverage companies. So I decided to stop by the event and taste what's new and interesting. My name is Larry Paterno from Avellino Spirits.
11: Avellino is a uh, flavored cordial, basically an anise-based after-dinner drink, fruits and nuts along with the anise flavors. It's a family recipe that I've been working on for 20 years, and now we got approval and we're on the market.
2: There's obviously been a cocktail explosion lately, right? A renaissance. Do you? Uh, does that kind of give you hope that this could maybe take off? Well, you know what? As The worse things get, the more people drink. All right, I'm going to give it a try. It tastes like those wonderful Christmas cookies, those Italian Christmas cookies. biscotti. Yeah, it tastes like biscotti. And what's in there? What kind of fruits and nuts? Well, I can't tell you. I'd have to kill you. (laughs) That sounded convincing with your accent. Could I get your name? Uh, David Hughes. And uh, what is the name of your company? Uh, the American Gin Company. So gin's pretty popular now, but I've noticed something on your table which is what attracted me here, something I've never seen before, which is a gin liqueur. Can you
5: explain to me what that is? Yes, it's actually it's, it's, it's a traditional product, usually from England. This is the first one in, in the U.S. It's a gin-based mix with juice from damson plums. Whoa, what are damson plums? Damson plums are rare in this in this country. They're, they're small plums that are a little more tart, a little more tangy than normal plums. They grow wild in England, so you'll see this product there a little more.
2: Oh, really? Because I was thinking gin is always, I consider it such a civilized drink that it wouldn't sully itself by being blended. But you're saying this is a fairly traditional cocktail?
5: Yes, usually homemade, small production. Uh, this, our version, is also a small production. And this one's all from upstate New York. Uh, it was hard to find enough damps and plums up there, so we actually had to totally clean out two different orchards. May I try some? Absolutely. All right, I'm going to check it
2: out. You know, I have to admit, I see a, I see a marketing problem right off the bat. It looks a little like Robitussin. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay away from that.
5: <laughs>
2: Man, that is outstanding. So can you pronounce the name of the bottle? Avril. Is that a fake
5: British name? No, it, it, it's kind of a, a reference to its, its New York roots after Avril Harriman, a former governor of New York. So can I get your name?
8: I'm Kiki Braverman. I'm from Bavaria.
2: (laughs) Are there lots of Kikis in Bavaria?
8: I have never met another one. I hear um, there is one in Japan.
2: What is the name of your company?
8: Pure Spirits. I have three liqueurs here. So try this elderflower liqueur. All
2: right, I'm going to give it a try. That almost tastes good for me.
8: (laughs) It is originally a medicine. I went to convent school, and when I came down with a cold, the nuns gave us you know, uh, this. Elderflower liqueur three times a day, uh, one teaspoon.
2: The healthcare system in Germany sounds great.
8: I'm not making this up. It originates in the monasteries in our area, and the monks developed the elderflower cordial as a medicine.
2: What is an elderflower? What does it look like?
8: The elderflower is um, starts very little as a bush. It That's
2: a kinder flower.
8: <laughs> it's a it's it turns into this beautiful tree, uh, very rustic looking. In June, all of a sudden, this tree explodes into a cloud of the most highly fragrant, you know, white cloud. It's thousands and thousands of tiny star-shaped blossoms and the air is heavy with honeysuckle. It's almost entrancing when you walk down a country lane around our distillery. It's a, it's a beautiful magic experience.
2: So you don't need a big marketing budget. You're making a very compelling, very poetic case for elderflower liqueur.
12: <laughs> Hi, my name is Robert Biernecker from Koval Distillery, and I'm the master distiller and co-owner of Koval. All right, well, I notice on
2: your table Something called dark millet.
12: Can you tell me what that is? The dark millet is essentially a whiskey that is made 100% out of millet. What is millet? Millet is a very unique grain. Uh, in Europe, it is used often as a rice substitute. Here, it is known as bird food. Unfortunately, but it's, really, yes, really, it's it's a it's an extremely tasty grain. It's very small. So, what else dis- distinguishes dark millet from your typical whiskey? It is a grain that is gluten-free, and it's actually uh, something that people with celiac disease look at and feel more comfortable trying. That's a growth market. Absolutely, I mean, that was, distilled spirits naturally are free of gluten because it gets removed during the distillation process. People having something like millet that they know they can tolerate just psychologically seems to be beneficial as well. All right, may I try some? Of course. There's almost like a kind of a honey edge to it. That sweetness that you just got, that honey sweetness, really is the characteristic of the millet. And it is unbelievable how sweet the millet mash gets. It's literally like milk and honey. We've been giving it to birds all these years. (laughs) It is a real shame.
0: Interesting stuff, Yeah, Brendan. But a question. Was everyone you talked to just soused? How could they not be?
2: (laughs) This was part of a larger event called the Manhattan Cocktail Classic, which lasts for five days. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) I actually asked an absinthe maker who was at the show how much he drank of these things, and he said he had maybe 10 absinthe cocktails a day. What? (laughs)
0: And he's alive?
2: But, like, over the course of 15 hours. So he didn't go all Van Gogh or anything weird. Good. Uh, But I definitely think that including, like, a black coffee and Alka-Seltzer Expo at the next event. Probably a good idea. Yeah.
0: Our guest of honor this week is filmmaker Richard Linklater. His debut movie, Slacker, was one of the defining movies of independent cinema in the 1990s. He's since made everything from cult classics like Dazed and Confused to the animated A Scanner Darkly and the hit comedy School of Rock. His new film is a dark comedy that reunites him with School of Rock star Jack Black. It's called Bernie. And Richard, welcome. All right, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. First of all... This film is based on a true story that happened in East Texas, where you're from. Why don't you tell us uh, what happened in real life? And uh, I guess we should say here, spoiler alert, you're about to give away the entire plot.
11: Yeah, it's a really bizarre true crime story from a little town in East Texas. You know, Jack Black plays Bernie, the most beloved man in this town. He sings in the church choir. He's a lay minister. He performs funerals and just a a really sweetheart of a guy. But he befriends kind of the most disliked rich lady in town who really doesn't care what anybody thinks about her. Mm -hmm. She drives him crazy and he shoots her in the back four times. (laughs) This is real comedy, isn't it? I said it was a dark comedy. Puts her in a freezer. This is where it gets funny, though. None of that's funny. Here's where it gets funny. Puts her in the freezer, and then life goes on. That's the strange thing. If you kill someone absolutely no one likes, including her own family. It's not a problem. No one notices. So (laughs) life goes on. And even when he does confess, nobody in town
0: wants to actually see him convicted.
11: Yeah. This is a crazy film, but it's all, I can honestly say, I really embellished nothing. (laughs) Everything here actually happened, and it's very close to the characters and what happened many of your films have been set in texas
0: this one really i feel is about texas early on in the movie a character gives us this brief overview of all the different regions of texas mm-hmm. the state is almost a main character yeah and you choose for your most texas centric movie this insane story <laughs> what about the story just it was like i'm going to make my woody allen's manhattan
11: about this about this crazy crime Uh, you know I was talking to Matthew McConaughey who grew up in a town really close to her he plays the DA in the movie and it's a crazy story but when you grow up in a place like East Texas you know life behind the Pine Curtain it's kind of like you just sort of go yeah okay crazy things
8: happen well hell even if he did do it she was the so mean and ornery. She had it coming to her. Mm-hmm.
4: It's not as bad as people say it is. He only shot her four times, not five.
1: You know what? You people are as crazy as Coots. I like Bernie Tita as much as you did. He did shoot her, though.
0: But it still ultimately seems very sunny. Somehow your movies very often deal with dark yeah. subjects. Why, how do you <laughs> manage to maintain a sunny disposition with these topics?
11: Well, this is a complex one on Bernie because I really believe and I know for a fact Bernie isn't a dark guy and the movie is a reflection of his point of view the movie is kinda from Bernie's perspective and Bernie's not a dark guy but he did commit the darkest of dark acts he took another person's life so it really begs the question if the nicest guy can do that? Could you? Could I? Mm. Could the circumstances in your life get such? Could you allow yourself to be in a relationship that you could do such an act? To me, that's much more interesting than portraying like a psychopath who's killing people <laughs> regularly, you know, that they just can't help it. This is like, wow, a nice person. So I don't really see this as a dark comedy. I see it more as a comedy with just this one little moment of darkness. <laughs> that sort of has has so, to be but, dealt with. But on paper... You know, it's a true crime story. She's in a freezer. It all sounds so horrible. And that's why Bernie got prosecuted so much, because it sounds and looks horrible. But if you really get into it, you realize the reasons he's doing his things, you know, putting in her freezer, it's kind of out of respect in some strange way.
0: Yeah, he does say at some point that he's, he put her in the freezer because at some point he wanted to give her a proper burial.
11: Yeah, he would never desecrate a body. I mean, outside of shooting her in the back four times, you know, that's where it gets very surreal.
0: All right, we we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, the first question is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you?
11: Oh, definitely don't ask me what I'm working on or what's next. Really? Why? why yeah, because you just get sick of talking about yourself so much.
0: <laughs> so why are you here? Yeah,
11: well, I'm trying not to talk about myself. I'm trying to talk about the movie and Bernie. So I'm okay with that. That if you're going to do a public art form like film, I think you have to at least be able to do that. <laughs> but what you're doing next is kind of like that gets into, oh, you know, development process and all. That's just it's just boring. You don't get anything. I, I'd rather talk about ideas.
0: Well, in a way, it's like I think why people like it is because it's like listening in on a therapy session a little bit, telling you know so. Celebrities telling you their hopes and dreams and how that relates to their yeah, art.
11: I can do that. I do. This is a therapy session for me just to talk about the movie because I'm still discovering it. I can still have an idea that I've never had about why I wanted to do the movie or within a conversation about the movie. When I talk about myself, I, I don't learn anything except I sound like a dweeb. Or something. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I promise you do not sound like a dweeb yet. We'll, we'll see how you respond to the second question, which is tell us something we don't know. And this can either be about yourself, which I guess it probably won't be, or something just in general like trivia about the world.
11: But something we don't know? Well, you know, I was reading this morning about the historical, like, geological development of New Zealand, how it sort of sprung off from the continent around it and was isolated. So it had this species of where we had mammals developing. All they had was birds. They had no mammals. So if you could go back tens of millions of years, all of New Zealand was ruled by these huge, like twice as big as ostriches, birds. But I don't, you know, (laughs) I don't know. But I, I didn't really answer your question because... I can't say I know that and others don't because I receive that information from someone else. So to really get at something that I know that absolutely nobody knows, that's that's a tough question, theoretically, <laughs> wouldn't you say? I think it's okay if it's secondhand knowledge. Everything is secondhand knowledge from somewhere. But what isn't? That's what I'm getting at. That's what blows me away. I, I'm obsessed with science in that regard. The guys who truly do discover. Yeah. You know, think of 1923 Hubble. <laughs> who the universe goes from being one galaxy to a 100 billion more galaxies in one discovery. To me, that's mind-blowing that our perception of ourselves in the universe could shrink to one 100 billionth of it where it was last year. <laughs>
2: that was spoken like a true Texan. His yeah. mind is blown when he learns that he's not the center of the universe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Actually, I admire him as maybe the only Texan who'd admit his state on in any way is small. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've sipped some drinks, talked with a great artist. There's but one thing left for a swell dinner party. The music.
2: Violins is a Brooklyn based band. That is V I O L E N S. That's right. Their name has a dark edge. Indeed. But not this song. It's called Totally True. Mm-hmm. And it kicks off their new album called True. Here's a clip. True.
0: The song is Totally True, the band is Violins, and here they are with some suggestions of other people's music.
1: My name is George from Violins. I'm Ito from Violins, and uh, we've been asked to put together a song list for a dinner party.
13: For the icebreaker, kind of cocktails portion of the dinner, the band is Revolving Paint Dream, and the song is Stop the World. Must be late 80s, early 90s, like a creation records band. It's kind of like this Beatles-y paperback writer guitar, 60s guitar stuff. And one of my favorite snare sounds. I think it just has like an upbeat, kind of happy, make people comfortable sort of vibe.
1: Second track is a Night Jewel track called In the Dark. And we thought that this would be played... Gathering the guests and going towards the dining
13: room. It'd be a, a processional or. kind of walk. Of man,
12: but don't try to
13: Nigel and her band are amazing. They just um, put
1: out a new record on Secretly Canadian this year, a few months ago maybe. Yeah, um, pretty recently. It's a little moody. It's got a, it's got. I I think it's a pretty sexy song. A lot of their songs are. It's a slow you say dance.
13: Sexual or sexy, either. I also think that the opening synths will guide the dinner guests to the main <laughs> chorus song.
1: It's like an Amuse Bouche song.
13: For the main chorus portion. We selected Dead Can Dance with Anywhere Out of the World. It's a song off the record. It's a 1987 record called Within the Realm of a Dying Sun. Definitely, like, would be a low-lit dinner situation. Probably involve a lot of, like, black food. <laughs> like black pasta. Black beans. Black candles.
9: The face of too far.
13: They use a lot of medieval instruments in their music. The choices and sounds, the synth sounds, and the vocal texture and everything like that is, is just one of my top favorite um, production bouquets, if you will.
1: And we thought we would lead out with, um, with a song by this new band, Ice Choir, uh, called Afar, which is a little bit more sweet, but pretty amazing.
13: It's fast paced, turbo bass in the house, lots of amazing synth sounds, insane use of editing and and composition. Their album's coming out very soon and it's both of our favorite record right now. We can't stop listening to it.
1: Everything on the record is satisfying and sweet.
0: A dinner party soundtrack from the band Violens. Their new album True on Slumberland Records was released this week. And that's The Dinner Party, folks.
2: Jackson Musker is assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks to Bill Lance, Ravi Carmen, Jeff Peters, Peter Clowney, Judy McAlpin, and our friends at the public radio show Marketplace. Bon appetit.